for consecrating a Monday night. Just a quick show of hands. How many were at the barn two Sundays ago? Talked about Battelle. At that point, I didn't have any copy of We Dance Because We Cannot Fly. Subsequently, been at Battelle in Birmingham and uh, have some copy there for sale if uh, that's of interest. Uh, if it's not of interest to you, buy the book anyways and pray about who you should give it to. Um, yeah. Because <laughs> there's somebody out there I trust in your social network that is struggling with something that has them bound. May well not be heroin. May not be drugs. May not be alcohol. But there, there are very few people that walk in the freedom the kind of freedom, the depth of freedom that the Lord purposes for them. And the stories from Battelle kind of break all of that open and stir something within the spirit that yearns to know something of the freedom that those guys have experienced. So, that's there. If you didn't get vital signs last year, it's also there. Commend it to you as well. This sounds really tinny. Do I have this in the wrong place? You're going to sort it out? Wonderful, wonderful, wonderful. This is now 12 years ago. I was in Belfast with the great guy, Paul Reed. And Paul told me of a, a man in their fellowship, Gareth Higgins, who's a sociologist. And Gareth had done a two-year study of the charismatic churches worldwide. What made them grow, what their sort of distinctives were. Um, tried to assess the consequences of their ministry. And one of his conclusions was that the charismatic church worldwide suffered a perpetually disintegrated anticipation. I love that phrase. A perpetually disintegrated anticipation. Perpetual, ongoing. Disintegrated, fragmented, anticipation. If that's too technical, call it the charismatic sag. <laughs> right? Pump, 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 pump. <laughs> Bless you for coming out on a Monday night. <laughs> the charismatic world, the renewal world, there has been so much prophesied. I mean, how many prophecies have you heard about the next wave? And I, you know, I know we see in a glass darkly. I, I get that. So much promised. But I, I won't ask for a show of hands. My guess is that there'd be very few of you here who have not concluded at some level that things haven't quite come round like um, 
those center stage so passionately declared that it would. Now, let's concede that it is not easy to hold abandon and discernment in dynamic tension. It, it's far easier to let the pendulum swing one way or the other. But that is our call, to, to hold that prophetic anticipation and discernment in dynamic tension. So this, this comes up and out of a study of historic revival out of 18 years of travel, 35 nations, 260 churches, and an ongoing reflection on perpetually disintegrated anticipation. Unto a greater integrity, disintegrated root integrity, Integrity has to do with wholeness. Integrity has to do with all of the different parts fitting together in proper order, proper place. Integrity means it, it's the same no matter where you knock it. That, that's, that's our call. That's the Lord's purpose for our life, that kind of integrity. All of that unto what we can, what we should anticipate. What, what, what rock-solid ground ought we, ought we to have in terms of our anticipations? The verse that I'd like to work this evening is from 1 Peter 5.5. 5. Peter says, clothe yourselves in humility because God sets his face against the proud but gives grace to the humble. I want to break that into two different pieces. I hope, I trust that you're absolutely convinced of the limitlessness of God's grace. We could look at so many passages Quickly, John chapter 2, the wedding at Canaan, the first sign, the first miracle that Jesus works. If you know that story, Jesus turns six stone water jugs, each holding between 20 and 30 gallons. 20, 30 gallons times six of water into wine. You do the math, that's about 600 bottles of vintage wine. Now, I hope you are not from a strict back Baptist background that works the greater miracle and turns that vintage wine into grape juice. <laughs> be, 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 because that so grossly misses the point. That wedding and that miracle is a prophetic anticipation of the wedding banquet where there will not be grape juice. I promise you that one. <laughs> that wedding banquet is one heck of a party. And this party in Canaan 
anticipated that one. And if you're not happy at this one, you might not get into that one. Because God doesn't want any sad sacks in that one. So you better get happy here, because you know what he says to the sad sacks in the other parables. I never knew you. We, we, we are called to this party, this joy. Enter the joy of your master. If you're not happy, you can't enter into the joy. This superabundant transformation of the living of our life such that we know, as Jesus said in John 10.10, 10, I've come that you might have life and have it in its abundance, its fullness. His fullness in our emptiness. It's one of the repeated phrases in that Jesus makes throughout the Gospels. Matthew 7, 11, How much more will your heavenly Father give good things to those who ask? That how much more is this abundance of grace, this limitless grace? Luke 12, 27, parallel passage there. Jesus continues the teaching. Have no fear, little flock. Your Father delights in giving you the kingdom. Sell your possessions, give to charity. Provide for yourselves purses that do not wear out. That piece, provide for yourself, it, it really has an implicit contrast. It's do not provide for yourself just for yourself. There, there, there ought to be a largesse to your living because of the limitlessness of grace. We seek first His kingdom, His righteousness, and in that largesse, the Lord then meets us in all our need so that we then have the greater freedom to meet those in need around us. The Lord purposing supernatural, superabundant kingdom Provision. Superabundance is one of Paul's favorite words. It's translated in different ways. The Greek word is perisuein. Romans 15, 13, one of the benedictions the apostle prays over. The early church, may the God of all hope fill you with joy and peace, all joy and peace, as you lead the life of faith until by the power of the Holy Spirit, you overflow with hope. That word overflow, same word, this perisuing, this superabundance, that there be this superabundance of hope. Same word translated in Ephesians 3.20, the end of the, the apostle's great prayer, now unto him who is able to do immeasurably more this superabundance more than all we can ask or imagine. And that declaration in 2 Corinthians 9, verse 8, God is able to make 
all grace abound to you. The superabundance. God is able to make all grace abound to you so that at all times, in all things, having all that you need, you may abound in every good work. What would your life look like if foundationally, day by day, you conducted yourself in that knowledge that God was not only able, is that, is that me or is that you or is that me? God is able to make all grace abound so that all things at all times, having all that we need, we abound in every good work. There wouldn't be any place for any anxious thought in that, would there? Wouldn't worry about a thing. They wouldn't be fussed about a thing. Wouldn't be any fear. Wouldn't, wouldn't be any need to try and control if we really knew that God was able to make all grace abound such that in all things at all times having all that we needed we would abound in every good work I realize it's a little bit simplistic, but I'm, I'm, if it's in his book, it's on offer. Flip it around. If he, if he didn't want us to have it, he shouldn't have put it in his book. Right? That's what the Lord purposes for the living of our lives. That knowledge that he is able That there is grace that far exceeds our every need. There are no limits to the grace of God. There, there is a glorious freedom when we really do have that settled deep in our spirits. It, it, we, 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 uh, I'm finding myself in a place where, where sometimes it feels irresponsible not to be all fussed about the circumstances of my life. Because <laughs> it's, it's sort of like I'm not paying attention. As in, well, anyway, it just is. But I, I'm coming really to
I don't want to live any differently. If, if, if this doesn't work, I don't want to live any differently. I don't want to live as if it is, doesn't. No limits to the grace of God. If we take up the second part of 1 Peter 5, 5, God gives grace to the humble, there's no bottom to humility. No limit to grace, no bottom to humility. Those of you taking notes, Isaiah, uh, Isaiah 2, verse 17, arrogance will be brought low, pride will be humbled, the Lord alone will be exalted. We could go to 1 Corinthians, one of the, um, probably the most spiritually arrogant of the churches in the New Testament. Certainly a spiritual pride, a spiritual elitism tearing that community of faith to pieces. Paul says in, in uh, the first chapter, verses 29, there is now no place for any human pride in the presence of God. And I think I've told you that maybe when I was here last time. My first few visits to the Toronto airport, you know, good Baptist, conservative Baptist freaked out at the back, just kind of going, what on earth is going here? But looking at John Arnott, Randy Clark, the two guys center stage, two of the most humble men I have ever seen on the platform. All that I didn't know I knew that was the real deal. Because you cannot, you can fake a lot up here. You cannot fake humility. That's a supernatural grace. In the presence of God, there's no room for any human pride. I have taped on my wall a quote from Thomas Merton. Perfect humility implies perfect confidence in the power of God, before whom no other power has any meaning, and for whom there is no such thing as an obstacle. Humility is the surest sign of strength, not our own, but that confidence in the power of God at work for us and through us. Perfect humility implies perfect confidence in the power of God. Well, four years ago, I acted on this truth of which I am convinced. And I spent five months diversifying my resume. I worked at a private member's golf club, cutting greens. That's where I met Jamie. Not at the golf course, but in that town. My work day started, our work day started a half hour before dawn. And uh, the first five hours of each day, I walked behind a power mower that pulled at 3.2 miles an hour. And by the time I'd cutting, had finished cutting the, my 10 greens, 
I'd walked over 11 miles. Uh, then I'd spend about three hours doing landscaping. I'd get a really big meal. And then most days, I would golf until dark. And then I'd do it all over again. Partly because I wanted to act on 1 Peter 5.5 5, and the Russian Orthodox maxim, the hands at work, the mind and heart with God. We were, this was in Collingwood, Georgian Bay out in front, the Blue Mountain behind. Spectacular sunrises over the bay. The mower with its white noise, I was on my own. It was a perfect situation to pray and to sing and put my heart before the Lord. Uh, I ate like a horse and I slept like a dog. And it was a really great season. Because of our early start, the, the members never saw us. We, we were the, the magic elves that just kept their course in pristine condition. And, uh, they would see us while we were landscaping. My job for most of that five months was to cut round river rock into the corners of the cart paths, the paved cart paths. Because the guys would take the electric carts and, and cut the corners, it would get all muddy. And so I was to make this cobblestone to kind of keep them off of that. And most of the guys, the members, as they walked by, I'd be sitting on my bum digging these rocks into the corners. And most of the guys would be complimentary. Oh, you, you know, you're doing a great job with the course. Greens are in terrific condition, da, 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 da. But, but some of the guys, you could just tell on the look, you know. I'm, I'm, I was the oldest greenskeeper in the crew. I mean, most of the guys were all in their 20s. I'm not. <laughs> the kind of look on their face at they looked down at me as, I, as they walked by was sort of, yeah, and that's what you get when you don't do your homework. <laughs> and I, I so wanted to have the moxie to look up and, and drool and say, I'm wearing new socks today. <laughs> It wasn't just a break from 14 years of international travel. Back in June of 94, when John Wimber came to the airport, one of the things he said is, God's doing an amazing thing here. You make sure you get low and stay low. I wanted to do that intentionally. And cutting grass for five months seemed like a good way to do that. I'm now going to tell you far more about cutting grass at a golf course than you ever wanted to know. <laughs> the goal of cutting a golf green is to cut long, straight lines irrespective of the contours of the green. If you watched any of the rider, the lines on the green were beautifully straight, even though. And it's one thing to cut that nice straight line first thing in the morning when the dew is heavy, because you can tell where you've been and where you haven't been. The last couple of greens, especially if it's been bright and sunny, 
we're cutting the greens every day and the mower is set such that it will scuff a piece of paper. That's how close it, you stand there. I don't know where I've been. And the, the, the head greenskeeper, the superintendent was on our case if we left bananas or mohawks. A banana is where you cut into a line that you've already cut, so you've double cut it. And a mohawk is where you leave a little bit and that bit of grass is longer. Because the guy's putting, it, it goes too fast where you've double cut it and it goes whoop whoop and stalls where you haven't. So there'd be on the whiteboard, no mohawks, no bananas today, guys. And we go, yeah, yeah, yeah. The mower weighs 450 pounds. It's got these heavy rollers to try and take the humps and the bumps out of the green. And for the first few weeks, I would manhole that thing because when you get to the end of the green, you have to tilt it up and lift the mowers, lift the blades, and then roll it around and then go and put it down and away you go. And it was hard work. It took a while before I learned it a cross-handed flip that would spin it around and then trust the mower with soft hands because it pulled straight. As long as I set it down and had a long look and trusted, I'd have nice straight lines. Cross hand, push down, roll around, dump, boom, away we go. It's a wonderful day. It was very good for me. Soft hands, trust, long view. Because if I tried to hyper control it, oops, <laughs> I'd cut into the, it was a mess. All the while, meditating on 1 Peter 5, 5, God sets his face against the proud and gives grace to the humble. If you allow me to amplify it, God gives limitless grace to those who continuously humble themselves. And if you would, just think for a moment what you think you most need what you consider to be your greatest problem. God is able to make all grace abound so that in all things, at all times, having all that you need, you may abound in every good work. And he gives that abounding grace to those who humble themselves. We back it up a little bit in 1 Peter 5. Peter says, clothe yourselves with humility. The word he uses literally could be translated tie humility on. Now this is only conjecture, there's no way of knowing. But I'm convinced that as Peter writes that, he has the foot washing in mind. John 13, 
where Jesus tied around him the servant's towel before he started to wash their feet. That, for me, is the, at least the word picture that he has in mind when he instructs us to tie humility on, as in, if you don't, it's really easy to slip out of it. This from a guy who knows <laughs> what it's like to slip out of humility. It took Peter a while to learn this truth. Learned it like most of us the hard way. Well, this, this much in hand, um, hands up those who need more grace. Yeah, if your, hand, your neighbor's hand's not up, just elbow them, tell them to pay attention. Hands up who, who would concede there's no bottom to humility. Hands up who want to go to the next level, down, <laughs> in order to receive more grace. Hands up those of you who are hoping there's another way. <laughs> not alone. That there is something in each of us that, that wants to be lifted up. In the book of beginnings, Genesis, there's the story whose dismal plot's been repeated generation after generation. Genesis 11, what we know is the building of the Tower of Babel. Babel? Babel, what do you say? Babel. Babel? Okay. Again, within the human heart, individually or corporately, there is a drawing and a desire for spiritual life. It's part of what it means to be human. What distinguishes us from the animal world? That's good. That's a gift. That, that, that's part of God's design in making us in His image, spirit to spirit. It's His love calling to us ever deeper into His heart. But those in the land of Shinar attempted to answer that call by building a city, and in that city, a tower, that would reach to the heavens. Now, at face value, that sounds like a noble effort. The thing is, if you read the story, their efforts are completely self-directed. Self-initiated. God has not mandated this. They say, let us build ourselves a city. And Shinar's efforts, ours ever after, are corrupted with the candid declaration of motive. Let us make a name for ourselves. That's the, the corruption of that longing to be lifted up. That, that somehow in the lifting up, we're special. Consequence of that story, the scattering, the division, the fracturing, 
because God sets his face against the proud. I jump from there to Acts chapter 2. Through the power and the release of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost, the Lord graciously undoes the curse of Babel. Pentecost is the blessing greater than the curse. With greater blessing, the scattering is reversed, the dividing walls are broken down, the confusion and the dislocation is now turned into this unifying work. This one body, this forming of one body. But if you will, there's still a measure of that Babel spirit in each of us that needs exercising. Because the subtleties of making a name for ourselves, it corrupts even our most consecrated efforts. Whatever the project, that, that sense of wanting to make a name, it just brings distortion. The Apostle Paul brings kingdom correction throughout his letters, 1 Corinthians more than most. Chapter 3, for instance, he, he addresses a, a really unhealthy devotion to personality, to individual ministry. After lamenting it for a bit, he asks rhetorical questions. After all, what is Apollos? What's Paul? His answer, only servants. Paul refuses to make a name for himself and states, neither is he who plants nor he who waters. Neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who makes things grow. And, and I'll leave it to you for homework. If you have a Bible program or if you've got to go the old way and use a book, just go through Paul's letters. Find the number of times he refers to himself as apostle. From Paul, apostle of God, apostle of the Lord Jesus, sent by God. Typically use that as the opening to, to remind his readers, because apostle epistolene means to be sent. Sometimes he says, folks, whether you like it or not, God sent me to you. More often than not, Paul refers to himself thereafter as servant, not apostle. In the body of his letters, he refers to himself as servant. We back up a little bit to the Gospels. Repeatedly, after especially the healing encounters, Jesus concludes by telling the now healed not to make him known. See that no one knows about this. Tell no one. We read the Gospel writers, he wanted them not to tell who he was. Uh, theologians call it the messianic secret. And, and there's truth in that, that, that the fullness of the glory of Jesus cannot be revealed until he goes to Calvary. It's true, but there's more to it than that. 
See, even Jesus refused to make a name for himself. Wouldn't let others try and do that for him. probably three years ago now. I was on the phone to a dear friend of mine, Jack Taylor. He lives down in Florida. Wonderful man of God. Jack's in his early 70s now. He's been itinerating for most of his adult life. He's he's a great guy. And uh, I won't rehearse the circumstances, but there'd been another big fall And he and I were just kind of lamenting what he called, what Jack called, celebrity Christianity. (coughs) Kind of lamenting the whole marketing mechanics. He, more than I by far, has, has shared the platform with the big boys and girls. And the question just sort of it's kind of surprised me. I said, of, of the last 15 years that you've been out there, Jack, been with the, the freshly anointed, the, those that are carrying the now word of the Lord, the big ministries, how many of those folks would you say are significantly more humble now than they were 10 years ago? And I thought somehow we dropped the call. I, I was ready to redial when I heard him clear his throat. I said, Jack, are you there? He said, Yeah. He said, I'm not sure I know of anyone. He said, The thing is, I'm not sure I can say the same about myself. But it is the question. And it's a question I leave you to ask yourself. Would you say, for all that you've received in this last decade, would you count yourself more humble now than you were 10 years ago. And if you're really brave, ask your spouse what they think. Not ask your spouse if they're more humble. Ask your spouse if they think you are more humble than you were 10 years ago. Of of all the things the Lord values, humility is at the top of the list. And again, we're we're pretty quick, quick to say, Lord, please, I need more grace. He's made it really clear as to how we get it. I'll leave you with a prayer. I've probably left it with you before. It is a great prayer. It is a dangerous prayer. It's Evan Roberts' prayer. Evan Roberts, the young man that the Lord used 
what we call the Welsh Revival, 1904. Do whatever you have to do in me so that you can do whatever you want to through me. The latter part has in view the limitless grace of God, the superabundance, that that kingdom superabundance, the first part has to do with that bottomless humility. Do in me whatever you have to do so that you can do through me all that you want to do. If you don't want your life to be the same as it is a decade from now, I commend that prayer to you on a regular basis. And I would also commend to you that you hang on tight. <laughs> because the Lord loves that prayer. It gives Him a great deal of liberty. You've given Him a great deal of permission to work grace deep into your humble heart. Unto, this is not a morbid thing, please, please, please understand. Unto that superabundance that He purposes for the living of our life. I came that you might have life and have it in its abundance. That's the heart of Jesus. You want to know more of that? Get low and stay low. God bless you.